Lord, as we come in this morning, I just know that. Know that you are reigning. You are working. As we approach this time and just being able to study your word, Lord, I, I think about even the power of your word, that you describe it as being sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce just through all that we are, cut through the layers that, that would separate us from you. And what I'm asking that you would do that this morning. I'm asking that your word would just blaze forth in power and, and, and do things in our lives that would even just last. I think of your description that so often you would describe your word as a seed that's sown, that bears fruit, not always instantaneously, but definitely effectively. Lord, I, I look to that and long for it. Lord, as I just begin this, I just want to put all that trust in you to do that, that you would speak to your people the message that you have prepared for them this day. Lord, through this time, through your word, we ask for it. And by the power of your spirit, may you do it. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, would you grab your Bibles? We're going to be in the book of Matthew this morning. Go to Matthew chapter 2. Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, chapter 2. If you got here this morning and you didn't bring your own Bible, we would like to encourage you to grab hold of one of the ones that are in the chairs nearby you that uh, we've placed there for the specific intention that you could be there with us. Uh, believing that God's word is both powerful, desiring that you'd see it in his word and that through his word he would speak to you. So would you grab a Bible this morning, be with us here in Matthew chapter 2. Now, as you're making your way there, you might be wondering, perhaps you are, perhaps you're not, but Jim, why are we going to Matthew 2? Well, if you're regular with us, you know that we're in 2 Peter. In fact, we will be back in 2 Peter next Sunday, kind of continue our study through. But this morning, we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 2 in what has commonly been kind of called a Christmas passage. It's a passage that would highlight the, 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 around the birth of Christ and obviously yesterday being Christmas, today being the 26th. All that kind of leads us there. And yet I know this, I'm finding you in a couple different places. For some of you, it's right where you are. There are some of you here this morning that Christmas, you love it so much. I mean, you just do, and you're having a hard time already letting it go. It's kind of like, I'm still going to listen to Christmas songs for like another week, and I just, I just can't, and that's great. And so for you, your heart is there, we're engaged, and by God's grace, I hope this passage speaks to you. There are others of you that quit at midnight last night. It's like, it's over. I mean, it's done. I mean, we don't even turn the Christmas lights on anymore, and, I just, and you're, and you're kind of thinking, oh no, we're at a Christmas passage, and yet I want to tell you something kind of interesting. It's not actually a Christmas passage. Most manger scenes, most Christmas plays, place the passage that we're going to study this morning during the birth of Christ, but it's not during the birth of Christ. In fact, that's what we need to talk about. Before we do that, let's do this. Let's read the passage. Let's read all the verses we're going to talk about this morning, and then we'll come back and begin to, to ascertain a little bit what it's, what's ta- what it's talking about, and by God's grace, hear what he has for us. There you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 2. Begin with me in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. 
So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not least among the rulers of Judea, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they'd come into the house and saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him, and when they'd opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warmed in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Well, perhaps, again, a familiar section for some of you, especially at this season of year, but I want to begin by telling you, as we look on these wise group of people that sought Christ, again, I want you to understand it took place after the birth of Christ, or again, after Christmas. After that, again, kind of where we are this day. How do we know that? Well, let me give you just a few quick things that will help you get this if you don't already understand this. For starters, it actually tells us that at the very beginning. You go back to chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, now after Jesus was born. Took place after. It wasn't during the birth. It took place after. On top of that, we have this incredible star, this star that they had seen in the east, and we'll talk a little bit more about it later this morning, but it would seem that this star shows up when Jesus is born. The wise men see it while they're still, still in the east, and they, you know, seeing the star born, begin to make their journey to Bethlehem to find Jesus. Now, probably very much almost a thousand-mile journey that they would have made, taking in those days on an average about 20 miles a day to, to make travel in those days, probably up to a month and a half to two months of a journey. So they didn't make it for the birth of Christ. We have that not only because of those things, but it tells us where they found him. In fact, you can jump down to verse 11 with me. It tells us when they finally find Jesus. It says in verse 11, And when they'd come into the house, they saw the young child and Mary his mother. They didn't come to the manger. Again, that's where all the manger scenes have them. That's where, you know, the Christmas plays have them as if they showed up right there. They didn't. They, they didn't come to the manger. They came to a house. And they didn't find a baby. It says they found a young child. The Greeks are very precise language and uh, really would lay it out to us this way. They give us several words for, for babies. I mean, Brephus being baby, Padion being young child, and Paterion being a child that's probably a preschool child. So that would place Jesus. He, the word that's used here is Padion that has the idea of him being, I suppose, what we would call a toddler. Not a newborn baby. He's already grown some. By the time they actually get there, Jesus is older. We have all of that and a little bit more. The passage goes on to tell us that Herod actually, you know, in attempting to kill Jesus, would go on that he kills all the babies two years and older. So it says in verse 16. And so that would give us again a clue that Jesus is not a newborn. Now, I probably think Herod was probably doing a little bit of overkill because he doesn't say just kill the two-year-olds. He says just 
Start with two and go down. So probably we find Jesus about a year old and Herod is just giving uh, somehow, you know, an extra measure of, of protection, trying to make sure that they didn't. Well, no, he's actually older than that. And so, again, probably after that, all that simply to tell us that the passage that we're reading this morning, it didn't take place during the manger scene. It didn't take place during the birth of Christ. It took place after. And again, it's actually where we are. Now, as I think about it, it's a little bit, not to get too technical on it, but I actually think about it, if you wanted to be actually precise, if we could fast forward time, not fast forward, excuse me, rewind time, and see what was taking place probably on this day, the day after Jesus was born, if we could gaze into it, the, probably the wise men were busily talking amongst themselves, thinking, wow, you, we saw the star, he's been born, and they began to make preparations. I mean, it's a two-month journey around that. They're two months back, easily four to six months of, a, of their lives being kind of carved out for this seeking of Christ. So it didn't take place overnight. And so today, the 26th of December, the day after Christmas, again, if we could rewind, we would find them today considering what they're about to do. And again, that's kind of where I want to meet you this morning. I want to meet you right here and just consider as we leave this Christmas season, as we walk away from it, how it's going to find you. And yet I have another thought that I just quickly toss out for you. It's probably not everybody here this morning, but I definitely had a sense in preparing this that at least for one, if not for a few of you, today is, a, is kind of a difficult day. What I mean by that is this. It had just been probably two, three, maybe even four weeks ago that you'd had a conversation with yourself. I mean, somewhere, maybe even out loud or maybe in prayer, you just had, had gazed at it and you knew Christmas was coming and you had a conversation that said something like this. I am not going to miss it this year. I've done it in times past. You know, I've gotten so busy during the Christmas season that I've lost the reason for the season. And I am not going to do that. I'm going to focus on Christ. I'm going to remember him. And, and you'd made that a definite intention. But today's December 26th. And for somebody here this morning, I have a sense that you're thinking, I missed it. I did it again. I mean, again, I wasn't going to miss it. I wasn't going to get distracted. And distracted I was. And I just want to tell you this. As you gaze at this section, this is a group of people that missed it as well. They didn't make the manger scene. They weren't there where the angels were there. They missed the, you know, so much of the, uh, of the things that took place. That, And I want you to know that there's hope in that, that there's hope even that, that what they did is, though they missed it, the account of the birth of Christ impacts their lives. And again, with that in mind, that's where I want to go this morning. I want to just lay this out to you because I believe that God laid almost a template, and I don't want to be too you know, hard, hard and fast with that, but in one sense, laying out an example for us that from that day to this, that those who find Christ probably came much like these first seekers. Much like these guys that they hold for us an example of even those. And so I, what I would like to do this morning is just help you to understand who they are and what they did. But my intention, and again, I just wanted to be very, very clear, is to invite you to be one among, amongst them. To invite you is that as we find ourselves moving out from Christmas, as these guys heard of the birth and what they did from it, that what you would do from this day would be exactly what they would do. And by God's grace, I hope it finds you there. Well, before we, you know, as we seek to understand that, let's get a couple things just clear. First of all, who are these guys? I mean, we know that, I mean, there, there, there is a sense of needing to understand that who are these wise men that go to find Jesus? Who are these seekers? Well, as we gaze on that, we need to begin by sorting out fiction from reality, 
fantasy from truth. There is a sense that as you gaze on the whole account of Christmas, again, so often people have it wrong. Again, even placing this scene in the manger, which it is, it is not. A few other things find themselves into this account that, again, would just be helpful for us to make clear. For starters, there's not necessarily three wise men. And again, I don't want to, you know, somebody's, well, no, I'm sure it says it in there somewhere. I've always heard that there were three wise men. It doesn't actually say it. It just gives us a plural amount. It says the wise men came. Now, because there were three gifts, over time, people just assumed, well, you've got to have three gifts, so you've got to have three wise men. doesn't necessarily mean that. We know there's more than one because it puts it in the plural. There might have been two, and there might have been 20, and there might have been 50. We don't know how many came. We just know that they came. And so it's not just necessarily three. So we can put that aside and make sure that that's, we kind of have that clear. Not only that, they're not kings. Now, probably few in you here this morning actually think that they're kings. But you might have sang the song this season. We three kings of Orient are, you know, that whole kind of approaching Christ. It, tradition kind of brings them down, even gives them names. And some of you all recognize the Casper and Balthasar. And, you know, all those are traditions that are not true. Again, we look on them. They're not kings. What are they? It tells us what they are. They're wise men. They're wise seekers. The Greek word is magi, and it it speaks of those who, I'm not sure exactly how to put it, but I'll just say they're thinkers or they're smart, and actually smart's not the right word. They they apply things rightly. In fact, it would be even more helpful if I just give you an Old Testament account. See, back in the Old Testament, back when Babylon was conquering Israel, Nebuchadnezzar, who was king over that, gave a, a command, and it's recorded for us in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. It says the king, and that's Nebuchadnezzar, instructed Asphanes, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish. It goes on to describe them by saying that they were gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom he might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. So he gives this order. I want you to gather all these guys. Daniel ends up being a part of those. And fast forward into the next chapter, after Daniel's used, it kind of I mean, is used by God to speak to Nebuchadnezzar. It says it this way, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Simply put, here we have the account. These guys are wise men. What then are wise men? They're king's counselors. What the king did, and he was wise in so doing. He recognized as Nebuchadnezzar was conquering city after city and nation after nation, he recognized his need to, to, to get people around him who he could consult with, kind of a, a king's cabinet, if you will. Those whom he could you know, talk to him about issues, present issues before them, and have them be those who would give him good feedback. Not just you know, yes men who did anything he said, but he, he gathered around him a group of people that would literally be called wise men or magi. Well, that's who we have here. That's what these guys are. There are these people that are that. And I guess I want to begin this morning by saying that's actually still the kind of people that God is seeking. Now, don't lose me in this because I might lose you if you think about it. Because see, I know that for some of us, we'd read this and think, okay, if the king was looking for like, you know, really good people, he'd pass over me. I mean, I would, if he was coming there to Roswell, okay, you know, go through Roswell and find a few people that I can make my wise people. You probably might think here this morning, maybe he wouldn't find you. And yet again, I want you to understand this. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom really means the, the ability to apply things, to, to be able to take things that you understand and put them into practice. 
And without spending a whole lot of time on this, I just want to tell you, if you're a seeker of Christ, I believe that you're found in that number. Why do I believe that? Well, God actually longs for us to have a relationship with him that is based in truth. So much so that when he describes it, he would describe us that we would love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. God has so designed it that those who would seek to know him would would love him with all of their minds. They would embrace him just by seeking him and thinking. Again, you need to understand this because there's a a mistaken idea that some people believe that if you're going to become a Christian that you kind of got to check your brains at the door. I mean, that's what you, know, you, gotta, you gotta, it's a leap of faith, and you just you kind of check your brains at the door. I just want you to know nothing could be farther from the truth. It's actually the, the exact opposite. To believe a, become a believer in Christ, your mind becomes fully engaged. The, the ability to question, to reason, to think, becomes something that God engineers and, and uses to its fullest. Those who don't do that, I mean, honestly, our world is, is all about deadening that and causing our minds to just be soft and, and, and so that we're pliable to the world. And Ephesians 2 would talk about that Satan engineers our world so that people are just carried along in some kind of unrelenting thought. And, and that's what the world does. And God would seek to meet you. And again, I want to tell you this. Maybe he's even doing that this morning. Maybe he's even meeting you, drawing you to be a part of this. With that, I'd actually give you another thought. Not only were they wise, I'm going to just simply call them the most unlikely of seekers. What do I mean by that? Well, again, it tells us that, again, that back there in verse 1, that, they, that they'd come there from the east. Now, pulling up a map of, of, of Israel and, and the whole Middle East right now, we look over there, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, which is right nearby, located right there. You move east and you go that direction. Now, Quite honestly, east of that is, is desert. In fact, if we were to put a, a, a modern-day map up there, there's just really nothing there. Tradition holds that most likely these wise men, perhaps they came from modern-day Iraq or, or Babylon. And that's actually quite likely because that's where Daniel was. Daniel was in Babylon. And so there's some interesting things there. There are a couple other traditions that place him even as far away as Iran. Either way, what I want you to understand, that's a thousand-mile journey if it was from Babylon, about 1,500 miles. If it was from, from Iran, that's a crazy thing. Again, I want you to look on this and think, what a crazy... I mean, how did people 1,000 miles away... I mean, it had to be a most unlikely that these guys would be those that find Christ, and yet they did. Some actually believe that when we think about this, and maybe not always the most popular thought among some Christians, but the truth is it's actually possible that they were Arabs. It's actually possible that they came from Babylon or came from Iran to to find Christ, and there's some interesting things in that. But one way or another, they were just far away. They were were a thousand miles uh, away, and yet these are the ones that come and find Christ. In fact, it's quite a contrast. We'll talk a little bit more about it in a moment, but you'll look and find these guys who are a thousand miles away find Christ, and those who were five miles away, those in Jerusalem, didn't. I mean, it's a crazy thing. Those who had such access to Christ and and so close, they end up missing it. And these guys who were so far find him. I guess I found myself wondering as I was preparing this for this morning that that's probably true of some of you. That some of you, it could honestly be said if we could go back and talk to people in your high school or college or people that you grew up, family members, some people would probably looked at you and said, most unlikely ever to become a follower of Christ. I mean, they would have looked at you and thought, no way. I mean, you, uh, I mean, a serious seeker of Christ, you are as far away from that as it possibly can be. 
That's where some of you were and maybe where some of you are. And yet it's possible. These guys from such an incredible distance came and found Christ. And again, I hold them out to you as those that, that become examples for all those who seek Christ, whose minds become engaged and, and make this incredible journey to find Christ and know him. And again, I give that to you as, a, as an interesting thought to at least begin on who they are. Well, leaving that, let's ask another question. How'd they know? I mean, that, that kind of interests me quite a bit. I think about it. I mean, these guys are a thousand miles away. I mean, there's no internet. There's no blogs. There's no, you know, radios going back and forth or television. I mean, how did these guys know? I mean, they're a thousand, fifteen hundred miles away. How did they know that the Christ was going to be born there in Bethlehem? How did they do this? Well, there are a few things that we can put into to play. First of all, it could have been partly their heritage. And what I mean by that is, again, is it could actually have come partly through Daniel. Again, Daniel, we have the account there in Daniel chapter 2 that he's brought in to be a wise man. He's ended up made the ruler of the wise men. And there are many traditions that believe that he actually began to, you know, kind of raise up people within a, a group of people who would be followers of God there in Babylon. And it could be that many of these people are kind of Daniel's disciples, hundreds of years later still, but still following in the teachings that Daniel had brought in there. And it's entirely possible that through some of the prophecies that are found in the Old Testament, they have now become those who are seeking Christ. Again, there's a lot, actually quite a bit there, but it's an interesting thought. And again, for some of you here this morning, I could make just quick application. Your heritage is, you, you have a heritage. You have people that have sought Christ before you and family members, and it could be partly that that's even drawing you to him this morning, but there's more. Not only was the heritage probably one of the most obvious of things, was it was a supernatural influence. It's a star, right? Go back to verse 2 as you read there in Matthew chapter 2. It tells it to us this way. As they come into Jerusalem, they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. They explain to him, Hey, we came because of the star. I mean, we saw the star. And the star kind of communicated to us that he was born, and through that, that influence, We've been brought here. Now, this raises up a couple of questions. And again, I'm going to spend just a couple seconds on this because I know that probably not everybody's totally conversant with it or maybe even totally interested. But every Christmas, it kind of pulls out where this was this star a supernatural thing, just purely supernatural, or was it what I'd call a supernaturally natural thing? In other words, how did this star work? Now, without being too confusing, we're just not entirely certain. I mean, we're just not. There's a lot of interesting things. I've read books, seen the videos. Some of you have seen them as well and done different things. There, there, there are two possibilities. Some it can believe it could have been something in the stars themselves that God himself had perhaps, you know, put into the very galaxy itself and into the stars itself the message of the cross. And believe me, there's actually quite a bit of interesting stuff in this. The Bibles tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God. And there is a definite possibility that some would point out that God had actually arranged the planets and some would even go and talk about, you know, some aligning of the planets that might have happened at this point in time and, and insights that can be found there. And if you're interested in that kind of thing, it's a worthy pursuit. If you're interested in that, you might just kind of Google or type into the internet kind of a, in the gospel written in the stars. And you'll find some incredible things that, that perhaps God even just orchestrated in creation itself. And so there are some of people that believe that, and there are reasons that that makes sense. In starters, because the stars seem to be around for quite a while. They see the star in the east, and we already talked about they saw it back there when Jesus was born. We know it shows up when Jesus is born, or they figure it out when he's born, and they make that journey, which again, easily, 
month and a half, two months. It might have even taken them weeks or months to prepare for the journey, to, to, to be able to make this journey. And so this star is still there when they get to Bethlehem. Seeing it as some kind of just radical comet or something that everybody saw would be a little bit odd because it's still there. Having said that, there's the other side of the camp where some people think, gosh, the star doesn't seem like just a star in the heavens. Because, well, just gaze down to verse 9 for a moment. Look at it there when it describes the star, the star this way. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It would seem that the star appeared, disappeared, then they found it again. They got all excited when they saw the star again. It actually moved and then stopped over where Christ was. And so it could be, again, some would say, gosh, it's not just an arrangement of the planets. There seems to be some supernatural element to it. Now, again, if I've lost you, let me pull it back here. Here's the sum, the sum total of that. One way or another, it was supernatural. Either God orchestrated the stars, or he did something absolutely radical to draw them to Christ. Either way, it was him, and it was something powerful. I want you to understand something. That's, that's God. He is still doing that. The Bible tells us that he's very involved in our world, that day after day he's working. For most of you who know Christ this morning, you could testify that he's done things to prove to you that he's real. Some things, that just, they're just aligning of circumstances. But yet they just, wow, that is so God. And other things where he does things to prove to you that he's real and to draw you to him, God still does that to this day. As a matter of fact, just as a side thought, just kind of interesting. Again, some people look on this, and again, just an, an interesting thing to think about the possibility that these could have been Arabs that actually came to Christ. One of the fascinating things we find taking place today is over in, in, in Middle East countries right now, there's actually quite a number of people coming to Christ. One of the fascinating things is that about a third of them, up to half, depending on the statistics that, that you get on this, are actually coming through supernatural events. I mean, it's the kind of thing where they're getting dreams and visions and they're showing up at believers' households and knocking on their door. It's like, I had a dream. And I, so I'm supposed to ask you about Jesus because you're supposed to tell me how to get saved. And it's just these crazy kind of things that are happening. And I just want you to understand something. God still does that. Sometimes in, in really profound ways and sometimes in simple ways, he draws people to himself. He did it here. He's doing it in some of you. And it's an incredible thing to watch. Either way, it's supernatural. But I, I don't want you to miss that it was more than that. Yes, they had a heritage, perhaps through Daniel. Yes, it was supernatural. But I, I find it in, just an interesting insert in our text. When they get to Jerusalem, it's not enough. The supernatural could only bring them so far. When they got there, what they needed was the scriptures. See, they go there again. You have your Bibles to, to Matthew chapter 2. They get there and they, they ask where Jesus is going to be born, where the Christ is going to be born. It says in verse 4, And when he, speaking of Herod, had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. how, How do we know this? And they give him the right answer. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. In other words, they took him to the scriptures. Again, I think it's just an interesting insert and perhaps a Holy Spirit kind of indication that we always need that, that God will, the supernatural works, but always to that place that not enough. He'll always bring us to this book. In fact, I would hope that that's even what God's doing in you here this morning. That he's brought you here this morning. There are other things at work, but he's using even the scripture to guide you to to where he is. And definitely it's always that way. There is the scripture that he gives it to us that points us to Christ. 
Well, all these things play into it and more, but let me give you just one more that I think it's important for us to understand, and I'll simply describe it this way. I believe it was hard. Something moved these guys over there in Iraq or Iran to make this thousand-mile, two-month journey to find Christ. There was supernatural. There was you know, heritage, but more than that, I honestly believe it was a longing placed in them. Paul would describe it to us this way in Acts 17. And he, speaking of God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. Paul takes us down deep into the core of who we are. He says, God made everybody, every nation, every person. And it's as if he describes that God has placed in the heart of everybody a longing to find the Lord, uh, uh, an emptiness. Some have described it through, through this and through Ecclesiastes. Solomon would talk about it as well. Almost a hole in the heart, just an emptiness that can't be satisfied with anything else and this desire to find him. I want you to know that God still does that. I mean, that's exactly, he, he, there's such an emptiness in our lives that one of the things that can draw and drive us to him is that longing for him. In that, I just want to tell you that God constantly promises Things like this. In Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God says the same thing probably in dozens of ways throughout the whole scripture. Just an indication is if you seek me, you'll find me. Now, there are a couple ways to look at this or a couple things to understand. One we'll see in a moment that there is a cost and there is a need that we need to seek him with all of our hearts. But I suppose I want to lay this out as a little bit of a hope here for a moment. God says, if you seek me, you'll find me. He doesn't say, if you seek me, maybe. You know, needle in a haystack, there's some of you that might find me. I mean, if you look for me, he says, no, he says, I just want to tell you, if you seek me, if in your heart you're hungering and searching for Christ, if you're longing for that, he says, you will find me. There's a, there's a promise given in there and a, and a longing to that in the sense of saying that's what we need. And to this, there is a promise even to you here this morning. Saying if God is doing this, perhaps he's using these very things. Maybe your heritage, maybe through even supernatural things, through the word perhaps even this morning. And he's given you a heart to him. If you find yourself thinking, you know, I, I could kind of identify with these guys, these wise seekers. I just want to tell you again, there's a hope found in that. That he tells you, if you seek me. You will find me. These guys most definitely did, and they lay out for us an incredible example of that. Now, at this moment, I find myself thinking, I wish, at this point of the message, I was talking to every one of you. I hope I am, but I probably not. But I hope I am. There's a sense that if I am, then you find yourself thinking, you know, I'm one of those. <laughs> I'm one of those that, that, that hunger for him. I'm one of those that he's using different things to draw me. And if you're there, I'd like to give you some advice as if these guys could just speak to you from the passage here this morning. That These guys would tell you what these wise men would tell you is if you're going to seek Christ, several things, pieces of advice they would give you from their own seeking of the Lord. For starters, I guess I would begin by they would tell you it is, it is costly. It is a sacrificial thing. That if you're going to seek Christ, don't think it's like some kind of you know, easy thing that's going to fall into your lap. For them, it costs them so much. I mean, time, energy, effort. I mean, at least a third of a year, if not half a year, just to make this single journey. 
perhaps much more time before that, after it, and other things. And all I want to tell you is this, is, is if you're going to seek Christ, there is a definite need to do so. I gave you that passage in Jeremiah 29, 13 a moment ago, and God told it to you this way. He says, if you seek me, you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. God is not looking for people that are kind of lazy about it and things thinking, well, gosh, you know, if it's really easy, if I can get it in like five minutes, you know, I'm up, you know. But if you say, no, I want you to seek me passionately. I want you to seek me with everything in you. I want you to put your heart into this whole thing so that you would pursue me. There's a sense that these, these wise guys would come to you and say, that's exactly what you need. You need a, a passionate seeking after the Lord, the kind of thing that would say it's worth the cost. It's worth energy, effort, and time. It is that. That's important, but perhaps more important is what you're going to have to get past. Let me give you just like three things that, that, that they discovered that I believe you'll discover. And first one, I'll simply say this, is you have to get past politicians. Now, please don't tell, I'm not talking about politics like Democratic or Republican. Please understand this is not a political thought. I'm using the word politics in the sense that it, that it was almost originally used, that it has the idea of people that live entirely self-seeking. And that professional politician, when you use that as, as, as a kind of connotation, there are those that do, every, they, they say the right thing sometimes, but everything they are is self-seeking. They make all their decisions based on, you know, whatever is in it for them, and that's exactly what they find in Herod. Oh, you, you saw it as we read through it, but you might just look again at it. The wise men come here to Bethlehem, come to Jerusalem to find Jesus. They come in there and they ask, where is he who's been born, born king of the Jews? It tells us in verse 3, and when Herod heard this, he was troubled. He calls together all the, the teachers and they find out, you know, the, the things that they have for him. And then it says in verse 7 this, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. If you knew nothing else of Herod but that one conversation, you know, if you were these these wise men coming in here, you'd have... Gosh, that sounds great. I mean, Herod wants to worship the Lord too. I mean, that's kind of what he said. I mean, he said he wants to come with us. He said he wants to worship the Lord. That's really, really great. It wasn't. I mean, you know the story. Herod, he's lying. I mean, he's looking for Jesus because he wants to kill him. He's going to eventually wipe out all the, the babies in Bethlehem for that same thing. And yet he says the right thing to gain his own agenda. Without pressing this too much farther, I just want to tell you it's true. I wish it wasn't. I wish I could tell you, gosh, if you come in here even into this church and you'll, if you find people, you're going to find just everybody passionately pursuing the Lord. And I want to tell you, it's just not true. You'll come into church, even this one, and sometimes there'll be people sitting next to you and sometimes they'll say the right thing. Oh yeah, I want to worship the Lord too. <laughs> I'm so into worshiping the Lord. I really, really am. But the truth of the matter is they're really, really not. They're really much like Herod. They make all of their decisions and what pleases them and what makes good things for them. They'll say the right thing as long as it will benefit them, but they really don't mean it. Their lives don't go in, in part of that. And I just want you to know something. If you're going to seek to find Christ, you're going to encounter people like this and you're going to have to get past them. You're going to have to not be just, wow, that's just so discouraging. I mean, so disheartening to find people that are phony. You know, it's as if they did. 
And, and you're going to have to go past those kind of people to get to Christ, not just past people like Herod, but even people what we'll call hypocrites or religious hypocrites. These are those who know the truth. They just don't do it. See, again, it's a terribly uh, interesting, if, at least for me, and tragic uh, encounter because you have this whole thing again when they've come to Jerusalem and they're seeking Christ. Herod gathers together. It tells us again in verse 4, the chief priests and the scribes, and those are guys who are students of the Bible, and, they, and he inquired of them where Christ was to be born, and they give him the right answer. It's in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, it's just less than five miles up the road. It's in Bethlehem, they tell him, and the incredible, horrible thing is they give the right answer, but they don't go with the wise men to find Jesus. They don't, they don't make the journey. Now, someone might be trying to be gracious right now and say, well, Jim, what if Herod was deceiving them? I mean, what if they didn't know? Well, we know they knew. You, you, all you have to do is go back to verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 3, when it, when it says, and Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Everybody's talking about these wise men that showed up from the east. I mean, they all know why they're here. And here we find some people that know the Bible. They actually even know the answer. But they don't go. I mean, again, in my mind, there's just such a huge picture here. People who are five miles away. I mean, they're so close to finding Christ, and they don't. People a thousand miles away find him. This is such an incredibly horrible contrast, and yet again, I want to tell you it's true. I wish that nobody knew what I was talking about and thinking, well, I've never met anybody like that, Jim. Probably you have. Probably you'd come and say, you know, I, I do know people like that. They know all the right answers. I mean, if I ask them, you know, what is John 3.16? They know what that is. They, know, they, they, they have facts down. I mean, they know biblical truth, but their, their, their lives don't look like it. They live an entirely different rebellious lifestyle. I mean, they don't actually do what they know. And I just want to tell you this. If you're going to find Christ, if you're going to be a seeker who actually finds him, you're going to have to get past these guys too. You're going to have to go past these who, you'll you'll find them in a church, you'll find them in a place of people that know things and aren't doing it. And I just want to encourage you, don't stop there. Don't stop with them, but go just what these guys did. They continue past them. In fact, I'll even toss in one more. They even go past the crowd. See, it told us there again in verse 3 that the crowd was, was, was moved by these guys coming. And crowds are like that. Crowds are fickle. They, they go up one moment and down the next. In fact, today's a good example of that. See, it's December 26th. A week ago, it was probably lots of people were talking about Christ. It wouldn't have been hard to hear any radio station just hear people talking about things and even throwing in Christian phrases and, and Christian truth, but today it's over. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it is just done, and you find yourself thinking, well, crowds, they just they get excited for a moment, and when the excitement ceases, most cease. I just want to tell you these guys didn't. On December 26th, if you will, maybe not actually December 26th, but the day after Jesus was born, these guys were seeking Christ. When the crowds quit, these guys continued pressing after him. And I call you to it, in a sense, to tell you all of that. And maybe I could simply give it to you this way. Seek him till you find him. If God's promise remains true, and it does, if he's telling you, seek me, and you will find me, then these wise men, would tell you, it's worth the seeking. You seek him till you find him. We traveled a thousand miles. We, we covered incredible sacrifice, and we found him. And God has given you a promise, even just throughout all of his words, saying if you will join them in this seeking, you will find him. And there's a definite place to that and a definite call to it that you would be one of those seekers that would find Christ, that would pursue him. With that in mind, 
Perhaps one of the key issues, though, how are you going to find them? Again, maybe I can give it to you as if I'm giving you advice, keys from, those who, from these wise men to, about how you find Christ. Because I want to tell you, I believe these guys sought and found Christ correctly. They had a good intention. In fact, it was their intention from the beginning. Go again back to your Bibles and you look there in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we've seen a star in the east. And notice what they say. And we've come to worship him. They knew why they were coming. They said, we, we've come with a definite intention to worship him. To, to see him for who he is, to declare his worth, to know him for who he is. We've come with that intention, and that's exactly what they did. Go now down to verse 11, where it describes that when they find Jesus this way. And when they come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. I just want to tell you that in one sense, again, that's the aim. They would look at you and they would call you to worship him. And yet they would do so not just in some vague thing. What I mean by that is this. If I asked you right now, what does it mean to worship God? What is God actually looking for when he says to worship him? What would that that actually mean? look like in your own mind for a moment just come up with an answer don't answer out loud but just if i i want to tell you that god is he tells us he's looking for this in john 4 he tells us that, that god is looking for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth he's searching even this very day for worshipers what would that look like what does that actually mean one of the dangers is that when we think about worship, we, we put it into such a, a feeling-based, emotional-based, circumstantial-based thing that it really is something so much more. I want to tell you that I believe the example that God gives right here is an excellent example of how to worship. How do they worship? Well, go back again to verse 11 where we were reading. Picking it up right after it, it says, They fell down and they worshipped him, and it describes their worship this way. And when they had opened their treasures... They presented to him, presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I'd actually like you to begin by just noticing how it describes what kind of treasures these are. It says, and when they had opened, and just notice that word, their treasures. Didn't have to put it that way. In one sense, it's a word that you could almost leave out. They opened treasures to him. And we could think, okay, that's great. They brought treasures. Maybe they were somebody else's treasures. But the Bible is very clear. I believe the Holy Spirit's very clear that he wants to say that these were theirs. The treasures that they're giving to Christ were their treasures. And I guess I want to begin by just saying it to you this way, that that's exactly what God's looking for. Now, therein lies a little bit of the problem. You know, I think about, sometimes people wonder about that. You know, people ask questions. Maybe somebody asked you the question this season. You know, it's Jesus' birthday. What are you going to give him? I mean, it's not about you getting. It's about you giving, and you're supposed to do that. Or maybe you watched one of those movies like The Little Drummer Boy or something like that. You, you know, what do you, what do you give to the king? I mean, what do you, what do you, what do you give? I, I don't have anything to give. And yet, I want to tell you, you do. You have a treasure that actually God is longing for you to give. And the question is whether you will. Well, what treasure? Well, they gave him three things. They gave him gold frankincense 
and myrrh. If you've thought through this in times past, you're already with me. If you haven't, they're crazy gifts. I mean, they, they would come and give these gifts. You'd have to think, okay, now why gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Well, let me give you the brief answer, and then we'll come back and talk about it. They gave him gold because gold was, was that would declare of a king all the way through the Bible when it's used that way, and they found him as God. They gave him frankincense because frankincense is that which would be used by a priest, and they recognized him as priest, and they gave him myrrh because myrrh would be that which would be used in a sacrifice or be used in death, and they recognized him as their savior. In fact, that's really where I want to draw you. In fact, I'll move away the rest of the stuff I have on the screen to simply say this is what I want you to take home. I mean, if you get nothing else, I mean, I just want to tell you, this is what you need to have. If you do everything else or you know everything else or you just know the facts of what I've walked out of here, if you walk out of here this morning thinking, gosh, I really thought the wise men were at the manger. I learned something great this morning. If that's all you walk out of here this morning, then I'm going to be grieved because that's not the main thing. The main thing is what they did here is they found Christ and they found him, I believe, rightly. And my challenge to you is both this day And if it takes you six months, if it takes you your life to pursue these things, these are what you need to find in Christ. This is how you worship him. How do you do that? Well, again, we'll go to it and talk about it. First of all, we have this first gift they brought, which was gold. All the way through the Bible, gold is a picture of of deity or God. It's found in the Old Testament, all the way in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. Wherever you found gold, that spoke of God's presence. When you get into the new heavens, we have streets laden with gold. We have gold all the way as a picture of God and and his glory and that of being a king. And I just want to tell you this in the most simple way I can. That's what God's looking for. That's the gift that that he'd look to open up your treasures to him that he would have to give him there this morning. That you would recognize more than that, that he would be your God. Now, so important is that you understand it. Let me give it to you in Jesus' words. In Matthew 6, 24 Jesus said it this way. No one can serve two masters. For he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. I find it one of the most fascinating passages that Jesus takes us into the very way that you're designed. And I want you to understand that Jesus is telling you the truth here. And he looks at you and says, I want, you need to understand something. You have the capacity to only have one master. By design, it's all that you can have. The way that God has designed your soul, you have the capacity to serve one thing. Now, you can try to serve more than one thing. He says, if you try to serve more than one thing, you'll be loyal to the one and you'll despise the other. You'll have one, but you'll treat the other with disrespect. There's no way to have two masters. There's just not. God has so designed you that there's this vacancy there's this throne, if you want to see it this way, that there's only one thing that can occupy that. And again, herein lies the question. Who's your God? What's making the decisions of your life here this morning? Again, I, I know this well enough to be honest with you. Not all of you have the right answer to that. Some of you, if you were all together honest, would be exactly what Jesus lays out here. He says you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon actually spoke of money without walking through all the etymology of it. It, You can't serve God and money. And yet there is those here this morning. That's actually what you live for. Money is your God. I I mean, God's there. You're here on Sunday morning. You're reading your Bible. That's great. But quite honestly, you treat him low. You disrespect him. You despise him. Because when it really come push comes to shove, the thing that makes the decision for you is 
What's in it for me? I mean, how much? What decides what you do with your life, how you spend your time, where you're going to go, what what your job's going to be? Everything is about money. And that's for some of you are. But for some of you, it's something else. In Second Timothy, I won't walk you through there, he describes the last days. And he tells us in the last days that there are going to be several prevailing attitudes. And one of them that he lays out, he says that men are going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It tells us that in the last days, one of the things that's going to be most prevailing is that instead of loving God and God being worshipped and, and served, a lot of people, are, it's all going to be about pleasure. And I can't tell you more clearly enough what you guys probably understand if you think about it. Wow, that's today. That's, that's what people live for. I mean, if it feels good, do it. I mean, that's the, that's the motif of people's life. If I, if I like it, I do it. I mean, that's really what matters to me. If it, you know, that's, you know, my pleasure is my God. That's where some of you are this morning. And I want to tell you again, it's a God that doesn't satisfy. It's a God that doesn't save. And it's a God that doesn't work. And if you seek God and find him, you'll find him here. You'll find him in a place where you would come and say, okay, God, I, I want you to be my God. I, I, I want to come to this one who is born king. And I want you to be my king. What, I, what you would mean by that is not just saying the words. And you could say it and it would mean nothing. But where God would be the king over your life, where he would reign, where, where the decisions that you make would be found there, that's what these guys found. And that's exactly where I call you to him. I want to tell you that he's worth, worthy of that. What he's calling you to is to worship him. And if you worship him, you'll worship him as God. You'll worship him as one who, is, who, who directs our lives, that makes the decisions for us, that leads us down the road that he has for us. And he is so worthy of that, so capable of that. I again invite you to such a relationship with God. Having said that, he's more than that. Not only is he God, but they found him as priest. And it's kind of, again, a crazy thing. I like to put myself into the setting. And I don't know if you ever do that, but it's good to do. Kind of imagine it. Think about what it would have been like there in Bethlehem. There Mary is and Jesus is. He's a toddler running around, perhaps one year old. I don't know. And, and there he is. And here comes these wise men. And they begin opening up their gifts to Jesus at some point after they fall down and worship him, which would have been an incredible encounter all by itself. They open up gold. I can do gold. I mean, gold always works. I mean, just, you know, you can, gold worked in every society. Giving, giving gold, that works. I mean, you can go to a baby shower today and give gold, and they'll probably be happy, okay? That's good. Just, that's good. We like that money. I mean, we can do things with that. The next two gifts get a little bit more strange. They lay out frankincense. Frankincense actually is, is, a, is a resin that looks like this, taken out of a frankincense tree. It is something that, when burned, just lays off an incredibly good smell. Now, biblically, frankincense was always found in sacrifices. Like in Leviticus 2, it tells it to us this way. When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. Again, Leviticus goes through and mentions it dozens of times that frankincense was this aromatic, just, you know, thing that you put in your sacrifices. It, it, again, it was meant to be that, and it would be kind of a crazy gift. I mean, as they, Mary's kind of there, and they're opening it before Jesus, like, frankincense. Wow, that's kind of crazy. Why would you give that? Well, I want to tell you, because I believe they understood who Christ was. They understood that not only would he be king, but he would be priest. Never could that be true of anybody else. The Bible's very clear. Nobody could occupy both positions in Christ and Christ alone, that not only would he rule and reign, but he is to us one that can be a priest. In fact, think about it this way. I know it's a little bit hard to put yourself back in, 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 in those days, but why would you go to a priest? 
If you were living in first century times or even, you know, BC, five BC, you know, five centuries back or something like that, why would you go to a priest? Well, you'd go for a lot of reasons. The Bible's clear you would go to give sacrifices for your sin. You would go when sicknesses were there. You would go when you needed guidance. You would go when you were, when you were confused. In other words, in many ways, when you think about a priest, we would probably use a different word that would make more sense to some of you here this morning, and that would be one that you go to for counsel. You go to for advice. You go to for help. Jesus is that, by the way. It tells us in Isaiah 9 that he's the wonderful counselor. In fact, let me give it to you in Hebrews 4. In Hebrews 4, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He says, guys, we have a high priest. He's incredible. In fact, Hebrews 7 goes on to tell us that he's a high priest that never changes. He's always doing that, that he is always at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Now, if you can grab that quickly, that means today, right here, you're sitting here, we know what Jesus is doing. He's a high priest who's making intercession. He's praying for you. Now, as he lays this out to us in Hebrews 4, it tells us, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are without sin. He became a baby. That's what Christmas is about, right? He was born and he lived a a life. He went through everything that was there. He he went through all that. He experienced all of that so that it tells us, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Simple thought. If you worship Jesus correctly, this is what you'll do. In your time of need, whatever that is, he will be your first resource. He will be your best friend. He will be your counselor. He'll be the one that you turn to, that you go to for anything and everything. He'll always be that to you. He is that. He's meant to be that. But I tell you again, honestly, it's just not so all the way around this room. Even for some of you who are honestly Christians, you go to the wrong, everybody else first. You'll talk to your spouse, your parents, your friends. You'd even go and pay a counselor you know, before you would actually go to Christ and say, Jesus, you are my counselor. You are my high priest. I am in need right now. I'm struggling right now. And I need exactly this. I need mercy and grace to help me right now. I need you to be exactly what you say you are. And I want to tell you again, he is so much more than you could ever imagine. That if you have not discovered him as your high priest, if you haven't found him as your wonderful counselor, I want to tell you he is. That's how these guys worshipped him. They brought him this frankincense, which I again believe they recognized him as priest. But they also recognized him as savior. See, among all the gifts, frankincense, I think, was crazy. Myrrh is even more crazy. See, myrrh, again, it's another resin that comes from a tree that this time gives off its, its aroma as it's crushed. It's actually gathered from a very thorny bush that looks like this, which has its own insights, by the way, that I think kind of could be fun to think about, that Jesus, when he was crucified, had a crown of thorns. I kind of believe it was taken from this tree, but that's just my opinion. But one of the, the fascinating things about this, 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 um, this myrrh is that you would use it primarily as an embalming. Uh, for people who died. In fact, we have it to us, given to us this way when Jesus died. In John 19, it says, And Nicodemus came bringing a mixture of myrrh, and that's again what I want you to focus on, and aloes, about 100 pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with, with spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. In other words, this is how they did it. 
Myrrh and all these spices, that's what you used when you buried somebody. That's what myrrh was. I mean, that's what, I mean, again, if you put yourself back as the fly on the wall, to me, this is crazy. I mean, I'm just kind of just trying to maybe think about what it looked like. I mean, as the wise men are opening up their gifts, gold, I can do gold. <laughs> Frankincense, that's a little weird. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. Myrrh. I, it's far less than this, but it's almost like going to a baby shower today and giving somebody a certificate for a headstone. Here it is. When your baby dies, you can just kind of bury him with this. Thought I'd give this. That would really like destroy any baby shower. I just, it just would. I mean, it's, just, it's like, what a thing. We're not celebrating death today. We're celebrating birth. You don't give me like something that's to kill them with. I mean, that's not what I want to do today. And yet that's what they did. They came and they gave Jesus this. And I believe it's because they realized that he was born to die. That they recognized that he came into this world to be a savior. That it tells us in Matthew 1 that he would be called Jesus because he would save us from our sins. And I want to tell you again that if you find Jesus for who he is, that's who you'll find him as. You'll find him as your savior. I love how it says it in Psalm 118. It says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. You would look upon him and say, that's what he is. That's how I worship him. What it means to worship Christ is he's my God, he's my, my priest, but he's my savior. Anything less than that is insufficient. You have to find him as your savior. So clear is this. The passages like 1 John 5 tell it to us this way. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of, of God does not have life. It's a simple statement, but I just want you to hear it again. He says, God gave us eternal life. He gave us life in his son. So clearly is this, if you have Jesus, you got life. And if you don't, you don't have life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. He is, he and he alone is the Savior. And there's nothing, I mean, as you think about it, sometimes people can get warm fuzzy. Well, I just kind of think everybody's going to go to heaven and all good people are going to make it. That's not what the Bible says. He is the only way, and he needs to be your savior. I invite you to that. And in fact, I'll give you more of that in the invitation in a moment. But I simply want to tell you, this is what you'll find him as. Now, again, if you find Jesus as this, it's everything you need. You have no greater need than, than that of a savior that it would save you from your sin. And if you find Christ for who he is, it's everything. I think about the, the, the well-known hymn that is sung, you know, it's well with my soul. That, that song just, you know, written by Horatius Spafford in some very disparaging times in his own life simply goes on to say, you know, this is how I figured it out. You know, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it's well, it's well with my soul. Whether it be good things or bad things, whether life treats me well and his life went crazy, he had lost two of his daughters, uh, all, I'm sorry, all of his daughters and, and wife in, in a tragic accident, and he was still able to say, here's what I know, I'm fine. I mean, even if life goes really bad, I mean, even if my days are spent in agony, even if sickness were to rack my body, even if, you know, here's what I know, I'm saved. That's all I really needed. You know, everything else is cake on top of it, but what I needed is this, and if you don't have that, you have nothing. 
But if you have this, you have everything. And that's exactly who Christ is. That's what these guys came and found. And I want to again tell you, I believe it's that template that's laid out for us. A template that would say, this is exactly where you need to come. A place where I could invite you again this morning to say, I would hope that you'd find yourself among them. That you'd look on these wise men and say, I'm on the same journey they're on. As a matter of fact, let me just kind of pull it to a close this way. Let me just walk. I gave you just a whole lot of facts this morning. I recognize that. Let's just quickly review. So we think about these wise men who sought and found Jesus. We, we saw who they were. I mean, what they were unlikely in one sense, but they were seekers. Seekers for truth and, and those who were there. And I call you in one sense, speaking to you right now, that for some of you, that I'm just encouraging where you already are. And some of you, I'm, I'm pleading with you to enter this course, a place where you would be the seeker. And I want to tell you, they, they entered this course for a lot of reasons. They had an incredible heritage. They'd gone before them. People like Daniel, who had perhaps sowed into their lives. And for some of you, you have the same. They, they had supernatural things, and maybe God is doing things in your life to draw you to him. Got the scripture. But in all of that, in your own heart, you have a need. An emptiness that nothing else can satisfy. A hole in your heart that some have described it that, that would draw you to this. And if you're there again, I want to tell you, this is where it's drawing you. It's drawing you to the same path that these guys went down. And I want to tell you, if you go down that path, there are a couple things you have to know. That there are going to be a lot of obstacles. It's costly. It does take time, energy, effort. You're going to have to get past just terrible things. Political people who are only living for themselves hypocrites, religious hypocrites, crowds that go up and down. But I want to tell you, it's so worth it to seek him and find him. And everybody who has found him has come exactly this way. And if you do, I simply draw you again to the most important part of it, that if you have all of this, if you get nothing else, this is how you need to come. You need to come and find him as your God, as your priest, as your savior. That is who he is. As we move away from this Christmas season, we find ourselves on December 26th. We find these guys that from the birth of Christ, this is what they left pursuing. My great aim is that you would do this, again, if I can say it even that way, even after Christmas. Even though the the season now passes and you pack up your Christmas things for those of you who have them out, may you join those who found themselves in this throng following Christ. And prayerfully, I pray to find him for who he is, as your God, as an incredible high priest, as the one and only Savior. Tell you what, let's just take a moment right now and just go before him in prayer. And just my hope is that for you who are already on that journey, in one way or another, I've come alongside you just to say, that's me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm on the same place as these guys. And for any here this morning that God is seeking to draw into this path, that today he would do that very thing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you right now that you are an incredibly faithful God one who is working today as you worked in times past. You're no respecter of persons, you tell us, in that sense you you don't do for others what you don't in that sense do for us. And I believe that, Lord, as we watch these guys that enter this incredibly long, difficult journey to seek and, and find you, Jesus, and find you they did and worship you rightly, They did. Lord, I I believe that even this morning that you're meeting us in that same place. Lord, there are those here this morning that have been on the same journey. In fact, they've worshipped you and continue to worship you as as God and and, and priest and Savior. And and in one sense, that they're just growing in that. 
they, they found the same things. They've journeyed down this road and to those who are on that and discovering and have discovered you, I pray just an incredible strength this morning that you would continue to draw them after you, that you would continue to draw them into deeper and, and more wonderful, just a relationship with you that just surpasses everything else, that they would indeed know you as their God, as their wonderful counselor, as their mighty savior. Lord, I pray that they would just grow in that and I pray for that. But Lord, I I make specific prayer for those who are just not on that course. Unbelievers and believers who have kind of journeyed off course here this morning, that you would draw them. That you draw them to be pursuing you. I hold before you your promise, Lord. You told us, in fact, you said it so many times that if we would seek you, we would find you if we search for you with all our hearts. I know that you don't lie. I know that you hold that as a promise to us and an invitation to all here this morning, telling them if they would seek you, they will find you. If they'll seek for you with all their hearts, they will indeed find you. Lord, I I plead that you would draw us to prove that out that we would seek you and find you, that we would discover you for who you are and that you would be life to us. Lord, would you meet us here and, and just draw us into the certainty of your promises and your ways. Guys, I'm just going to give you a quiet moment. I'm going to close here in just a moment in, in worship and in prayer, but before we do that, I want to give you a quiet moment just to talk to God. As I do so, my intention, my hope is that for some of you, you could only come and do what you've been doing and continue doing it, or others, if you begin doing it, that you would come before him and that you would worship him as God, as priest, as Savior, that you would open up your treasures, the treasures of who you are to him, that you'd open up your heart to him in a, in a fresh way. And so quietly between you and the Lord, would you do that? I'm going to do that, and then we'll come back together in prayer and close in worship in just a moment. Father, it's so crazy when we seek for other things to satisfy because they don't. Think of how you describe it there in Jeremiah 2 that your people had forsaken you, the fountain of living waters, and they hewn out for themselves their own cisterns that didn't satisfy, that didn't work. And Lord, the, the reality there is so often true. Where we seek for other things to be God, where we look to other things to be our counselor, where we'd seek for anything else to save us, we'd be left empty-handed. For none of them are able to do that. Nothing else that we put in those places are able to satisfy you and you alone. And yet, Lord, what a satisfaction is found in you. You are that fountain of living waters. You are that source that never runs dry. You are an incredible God, a faithful high priest, a wonderful Savior, incredibly able in all aspects to meet all of your people. Lord, would you turn us again to seek you? Would you cause us to be ones who who follow hard and set their focus firmly towards pursuing you? I pray that it would be so from this day, that as we close out this Christmas season through the announcement of your birth and thinking about even the wise men who'd heard of your birth and they, they walked away from that pursuing you. May we walk forward from this pursuing you. I ask for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
I want to say it one more time. You know, again, just not to make it any way remiss, if you're here this morning and you don't know him, that's what Jesus came for. They gave him that myrrh because they recognized he was that Savior. In fact, think about how Peter put it in Acts 4. He says, and there is salvation, nor is there salvation in any other. There's nobody else that saves. There's no other name under heaven given by, by, among men by which we must be saved. There's no other way to be saved, and yet you must be saved. There's no other source. And if if you don't come to God through Christ, you won't make it, is what he's telling us. And I want to just simply say it this way. If you're here this morning and you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you haven't found him to be what he talks about here, him being your salvation, then we would plead with you that this day you'd surrender your life to him. Uh, For that purpose, we're going to have, at the end of the service, we'll have several guys up here just to, to be up here just to pray with you. Pastor Phil will be up here if you have questions over it. But even during this closing song, Ron's going to come up here and Terry's going to be up here and they'll just be here. Even during this closing song, you just want to come up in that atmosphere of worship to have someone present to you the gospel. They would love to do that. Well, that in mind, let's all stand. We'll close now in worship and may God draw us after him. the Lord, exalted you are the most high, the ruler of all, worthy of all my praise. You are the Lord, mighty in all of your ways, forever the same. So worthy of all my praise I lift my hands in holy devotion to you My life is my sacrifice Daily surrendered I lift my voice unashamed of my love for you, for you are the Lord, my redeeming King. You are the Lord, exalted you are the most high. The ruler of all, worthy of all my praise. You are the Lord, mighty in all of your ways. Forever the same, so worthy of all my praise. I lift my devotion to you. My life is my sacrifice. Daily surrender. I lift my voice unashamed of my love for you. For you are the Lord my redeemer.
lift my hands. And I lift my hands in holy devotion to you. My life is my sacrifice. Daily surrendered. And I lift my voice unashamed of my love for you. For you are the Lord, my redeeming King, my redeeming King, my redeeming King. Oh Lord Jesus, you are our redeeming King. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done to draw us near to yourself. And I pray this morning, Lord, that we would come. Lord, that we would be those that seek you. And that we would leave this Christmas season seeking you evermore. Oh, Lord, now I would ask that you would go before your people as we leave this place. And just asking, Lord, that you would guard them and you would keep them, Lord. And you would lead them in your way. And we ask for it in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, bless you all. Have a great day.